0: So you've heard that illustration, uh, or that expression, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, right? Kind of like the ultimate procrastination, we'll get there sort of thing. Well, our text this morning in John 15 is one of those texts for me. I have been thinking for a long time, I'll figure out what that text means when I get to it. Guess what? This morning we get to John 15. Today's the day, now we're crossing the bridge. We've been in the Upper Room Discourse here in John for uh, several weeks now, and uh, you may remember the overall structure of the Upper Room Discourse. So Jesus is in the, the, the last night before he's betrayed, and he's had dinner with the disciples. That was in the beginning of John 13, and then he tells Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. Judas leaves the upper room, and this leaves Jesus with his 11 disciples now, and Jesus begins to teach his disciples some last-minute instructions, things they need to know because he's about to go away. The upper room discourse takes up uh, several chapters in the book of John, the end of chapter 13, all of chapter 14, all of chapter 15, all of chapter 16, and all of chapter 17, It's a lot of time that that we see Jesus teaching his disciples in the upper room. And there's actually a a structure to this teaching. It's not just kind of Jesus going on and on and on. There's several different parts to the upper room discourse. In the first part, uh, we have from the end of John chapter 13 until uh, the end of John chapter 14. This is what we've been working through for the past couple weeks. Lots of different instructions and instructions. the, the big picture is Jesus saying, I'm going away. And because I'm going away, I'll come back to you. But in the meanwhile, there's some things you need to know. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. And where they went and how long it took them to get wherever they were going really isn't the point of the Gospel of John. The point is that there's movement in the discourse itself from the first part of the discourse to the second part of the discourse. And all through this, Jesus is going to continue this idea, I'm going away. I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And in the meanwhile, these are the things you need to know. Chapter 17, which we'll get to in a month or two, uh, Jesus is uh, praying for his disciples, what we call the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we're going to find riches there that um, are just marvelous. But today, we begin the second part of the Upper Room Discourse. Chapter 15 begins this second part, but really the beginning of our text is not John 15, 1. It's actually John 14 and verse 20. Notice if you would, open your Bibles, John 14, uh, verse 20. We also have it up here on the board if you need to follow along there. John chapter 14, verse number 20, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus will be in his disciples, and his disciples will be in Jesus. What does that mean? What are are we talking about here? What What is going on? What does it look like for Jesus to be in the disciples and the disciples to be in Jesus? Well, actually, that's the point of John 15. You know the story in John 15, the parable of the vine, that's Jesus' teaching what it means for him to be in His disciples and His disciples to be in him. Notice with me, John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, our text for this morning. John 15, 1 to 11 "I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. When Jesus says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and I am in you, this is what he means. I am the vine, you are the branches. So our relationship with Jesus is like the relationship of a a tendril on a vine attached to that grapevine. Just like the tendril on the vine, we bear fruit for the farmer. And Jesus explains in our text that we bear fruit as we abide in the vine. And we, have, we bear fruit as we are pruned. We bear fruit as we receive Jesus' word. But before we, before we think about this parable itself... I want us to think about where this parable comes from. Why is, why is Jesus using this picture of a vine and branches and a vine dresser or a gardener? Where does this come from? Is Jesus kind of just making up a, an illustration? Actually, this is a common illustration. Uh, this is a, a common part of life in the ancient Near East. A lot of of... Grapes were grown in this region, so there were a lot of farmers who grew. It it would have been a very well-known picture. People had this experience all the time growing growing vines. But not only that, it's a common illustration in the Old Testament. For example, listen to the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah uses this illustration of a, a vine to describe the relationship of Israel to God. Israel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they, rain no, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So in this prophecy from Isaiah, just like in Jesus' parable, God is the, the gardener. He is the vine dresser, to use that, that old word. But in this parable, in Isaiah, Israel is the vine instead of Jesus. And at the end of the day, the vine is producing bad fruit instead of the, the good fruit that grows on Jesus. So there's some similarities between this picture from Jesus and the one from Isaiah. But there's also some, some differences as well. This morning, in our scripture reading, Luke read for us in Psalm 80. And you might have thought, what? this is such a strange psalm to be reading in our scripture reading. Why are, we, why are we reading this? It's kind of strange. Well, it is a little strange, but the reason why we read it is because this is another one of those places in the Old Testament where we have this illustration of the vine. So in Psalm chapter 80, Luke read for us right there in the middle of the psalm, he read for us these words. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. This is Israel growing in the promised land. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along its way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it you can find this same illustration in a number of the other prophets. It actually is a common illustration in the Old Testament for the relationship between God and Israel. And it's interesting, for all the times that it's used, and it's used by almost all the prophets, every single time that it's used, this illustration, the vine is cut off, and it is destroyed precisely because of bad fruit, because of the fruitlessness of, of Israel. Every single time in the Old Testament, it's an illustration of Israel's faithlessness. But now here comes Jesus. Jesus relives the history of Israel in his own life. He is Isaiah's perfect servant of the Lord, even though Israel was Isaiah's disobedient servant. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies that Jesus hasn't fulfilled, we look forward to the day when he comes back and he does fulfill those promises at his second coming. And so Jesus picks up this Old Testament picture, this Old Testament illustration of God as the gardener. But now, instead of unfaithful, unbelieving Israel, who is the vine, now Jesus Is the vine. And not just the vine, but the true vine. Did you catch that? John chapter 15 and verse number 1. I am the true vine. Why the true vine? Well, because Israel was the unfaithful, untrue vine of the Old Testament. That word true, Jesus is contrasting himself with this famous illustration from Israel, but unfaithful Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus wants us to be thinking about this illustration from the Old Testament prophets and seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Jesus is the true vine. And now Jesus, the true vine, he has branches, he has tendrils coming from him. And it is these tendrils which abide in him which bear fruit. And so this brings us to us as Christians. How do we as Christians fit into this illustration? If Jesus is the true vine, if Jesus is the faithful vine, taking the place of unfaithful Israel in the Old Testament, where do you and I fit into this? Well, Jesus tells us. Notice with me John 15 and verse number 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. We are branches. We are tendrils on the true vine of Jesus. And Jesus commands us to abide in him. Our life, our fruit depends on our abiding in Jesus. You know, it's fascinating. In this text, we do not find one time where Jesus commands us to bear fruit. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say bear fruit. No, he commands us to abide in him. Abide in Jesus and then you will bear fruit. The command is abide. The fruit bearing is actually the work of God. That's what God does as you abide in Jesus. He'll do that In you. And we'll unpack that idea in just a minute. But for now, Jesus is calling you and me who have identified ourselves with this Jesus, he has called us to actually abide in him. And the result of that abiding is bearing fruit. The command is to abide in him. Jesus goes on in verse number five I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God's goal for you is to glorify God by bearing fruit. And you will only bear fruit as you abide in Jesus. So abide. Abide in Christ. Okay, great, Pastor, but what does that mean? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It sounds like a very pious spiritual endeavor, doesn't it? But what does that look like? What does flesh and blood on that command look like? Well, look back in chapter 14 and verse number 12. In chapter 14 and verse number 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Notice in this verse, the one believing in Jesus will do greater works. Just like in our verse, the one abiding in Jesus will produce a lot of fruit. So there's similarity in these two texts. There's the same thing going on in the the two texts. In fact, when Jesus says in John 14, believe in me, believing in Jesus is clarifying what we mean by abide in Jesus. You know we've, as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, we've been seeing a whole bundle of words that are used as, as synonyms of "abide," right? We encountered the word "receive, know, eat, drink, taste, behold," all of these words that talk about what it means to believe in Jesus. And now we have one more word, one more profound word to describe what it means to believe abide. To abide in Jesus is to persevere in saving faith in a way that is marked by spirit-produced fruit. It is to live in dependence on Jesus, just as the branch depends on the vine. You know, I know a lot of us give lip service to our dependence on Jesus. We owe everything to Jesus. We've been thinking about it all morning long, right? All I have is Christ. Jesus gives us the life that we have today. Listen again to the words from verse number four. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Do you hear the level of dependence in that language? Don't think that you can bear a lot of fruit to the glory of God by trying really hard. It's not your strength, it's not your will, it's not your effort that bears fruit. You cannot bear fruit of your own strength. No, you bear fruit by abiding in Jesus. You bear fruit by Jesus. It's Jesus who bears his fruit in you. So Christian, remember your source. Remember where your life comes from. Keep yourself in the love of God as God keeps you in his love. Abide in Jesus. There's more in our text. The, Father, uh, the text says the Father is glorified as we bear much fruit. We bear fruit by abiding in Jesus by faith. But Jesus not only teaches that we bear fruit by abiding in Jesus, Jesus also teaches that we bear fruit by being pruned by the Father. Notice again the Father's work in verses 1 to 2. I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus presents us two different aspects of the Father's work in relation to this vine. We've already seen that only the branches who abide in Jesus will produce fruit. Only people who are persevering, continuing in their faith, in their belief in Jesus, will be producing spiritual fruit in their lives. Here in verse number 2, Jesus recognizes that there are people who are actually associated with Jesus, who nevertheless do not produce any fruit. Though they are in some way identified with Jesus... They have given no evidence in their lives of genuine spiritual life. But this introduces a difficult question and it's the bridge that I talked about a few minutes ago. This is the bridge that I have been procrastinating on for quite some time. What is going on with these branches? What happens to branches who don't bear fruit? What happens to branches who don't abide in Jesus? Who are these branches who are not abiding in Jesus? There are Christians who come to John chapter 15 and they understand Jesus to be talking all the way through this section about genuine believers, genuine disciples. When Jesus talks about branches who don't bear fruit and the farmer takes them away, the one who is taken away is ultimately burned uh, some Christians understand these to be descriptions of of believers who are going through refinement in their in their lives, just as Paul teaches in First Corinthians that you know the worthless works of Christians are, are burned up. So Jesus is teaching here that the unfruitful works of of these Christians will be refined. These Christians may be called carnal Christians or something. And I and I, I appreciate the concern of of those Christians to do justice to Jesus's words here in John 15 two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I do believe in this text, we see the, the refining work of God, the pruning work of God to grow Christians in holiness. But the pruning and the discipline of God in this text are not found in the branches who are burned. You see, we already looked at the Old Testament example. We already looked at the Old Testament poetry where this, where this illustration was used over and over. The prophets often talked about these vines who do not produce fruit and who are ultimately cut off. The burning in the prophets is always a burning of Judgment. The situation in the New Testament is described relatively similarly. It's not only here in John 15 that we encounter something like this. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, we read in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 23, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Consider also the words of the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 3, and verses 12 to 19, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you evil, unbelieving hearts, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So then we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The same John who wrote the Gospel of John will later write in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they they all are not of us. 2 John, in verse number 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. We read all of these verses because I want you to see it is the consistent teaching of all of Scripture, Old Testament and New. That there are those who identify themselves with Christ, but they reveal through their conduct And they reveal through their teaching that they do not belong to Jesus. Whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, fruitlessness is a sign of faithlessness. And the consequence of faithlessness is judgment. Jesus teaches here in our text, in John 15, 2, that these kinds of branches will be taken away. Later on, in verse number 6, John 15, in verse number 6, Jesus explains what taken away means. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The Father takes away some of these branches and throws them into the fire, just like the Old Testament prophets talked about. The vine dresser knows, the gardener knows. The Father will judge. Genuine branches are known by their fruit. And dead branches will be judged by God. So when Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away, he's not talking about people who are genuinely saved, people who are believing in Jesus. The point is not that Christians can somehow lose their salvation. Remember the immediate context. What just happened? One of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, Jesus says, was a devil. He was with Jesus. He was counted among the twelve. And yet he committed terrible treason against his Lord. He was, in a sense, in Jesus. He was counted among the twelve disciples. Yet he did not bear fruit. And in not bearing fruit, Judas did not glorify God. He did not glorify the Father. And that's again, that's the point of it all, isn't it? The reason God made mankind was for His glory. Look again at verse number 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. God intends for you not just to be generally associated with Jesus, not just to be loosely identified with Jesus, not just to hang around with Jesus and the people who like Jesus and to think that Jesus is a nice person who teaches good morals, the point is Jesus intends for you to be in him persevering in your faith and producing fruit as you abide in him. The point isn't even that you'll be trying to produce a lot of fruit in your life. If you're walking around comparing your fruit to the fruit of other people, then you're still missing the point. The point is that you abide in Jesus. You persevere believing in him. And it's as you continue believing in Him that God will produce His fruit in you. This is what it means to glorify God. This is what it means to make God look big. The tendrils, the branches that are connected to Jesus actually bear fruit because God is producing that fruit in their lives. That's what makes God look big. And this brings us to the pruning of the Father. God not only takes away the branches that don't bear fruit, he also prunes the branches that do bear fruit. Jesus says, again, uh, John 15, verse number 2, look at the second part of the verse. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Again, big picture. God is glorified in you as you abide in him and produce a lot of fruit. That's what God is accomplishing in those those branches that abide in Jesus. God is accomplishing His fruit in you. He is working so you produce a lot of fruits. And so, to accomplish this goal, in order for God to be glorified by producing a lot of fruit in you, the Father is going to prune you. Have you ever pruned a plant? Probably most of us have. Um, My wife and I, a couple of years ago, inherited a couple of rose bushes. And uh, they had been in our yard for a while. I don't know that they had been particularly cared for really well over the last few years. So last year, we we decided we were going to try and prune our rose bushes. Maybe they'll produce a few more flowers if we did this. So what do you do in the 21st century if you lack an important life skill like how to prune a flower? I was going to say YouTube. Google works too. We watched a YouTube video on it. What does it look like to prune a rose bush? So we watched a couple of videos on how to pr- prune rose bushes. And uh, I took our pruning shears and went at it. And when I, when I was all done, the rose bush was a lot smaller. I'm not sure if it was any healthier. But it is a lot smaller and it is alive so far. So that's a good thing, Right? Now, when I took those pruning shears to the rosebush, I did not hurt the rosebush, right? The rosebush does not have a central nervous system. It was none the wiser that I had done anything to it when I was done. But you know what? I'm not a rosebush, and neither are you. And when God prunes us, it does hurt, doesn't it? And this also reminds me of the words of the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Pruning hurts. Discipline is not a fun experience, but God has a purpose in pruning us. He intends for us to bear a lot of fruit precisely because he is glorified when he produces in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He is glorified when we share in his holiness. Brothers and sisters, the question is not if God will prune you so that you produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The question is how? And this is, this is something that we often mention at prayer meetings. We're listening to the different prayer requests and the needs of our, of our church family. Important that we remind one another of this again this morning. Your suffering in this life, the difficult circumstances that you pass through in this life, the difficulties in your health, the difficulties in, in family relationships, the, the crises that you experience in your life, these are not just about you getting to feel better and the situations being resolved as quickly as possible. That's not God's point. And, you know, it's not as though all of it were just due to the mysterious working of God either. It's not like it's all just a a mystery and how is this going to happen? What is God going to do in this? No, no, God is bringing you through difficult circumstances in your life to produce the fruit of righteousness in your life. That's the purpose. This is the pruning hand of God for your good so that you respond with the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You declare to the people around you that you are abiding in Jesus when you produce in your life love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control through suffering. It's not pleasant. It's not always fun. It seems painful, But your sovereign gardener, your sovereign God is carefully doing exactly what he needs to do for you to grow in holiness. And so the question is, are you learning? Are you growing? Are you producing this fruit as God brings you through difficult circumstances? Are you producing a lot of fruit? Before you answer that question, we need to hear one more thing from Jesus in our text, a crucial element to our producing fruit here as God prunes us. Notice verse number three, already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Jesus is using a play on words in this verse. Uh, in verse number two, Jesus says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that word prune in the language that Jesus spoke, that word prune was actually the same as the word clean. Like, like if you clean your hands or something, like it's, a, it's actually the same exact word. It, you, you remember the, uh, in the old times when people were sick, they'd yell, unclean, unclean, right? Well, that word is just, it's this word except with the un thrown at the beginning of it, right? It's, it's unclean, right? It's the same, it's, that's the word, clean. When that word was used in the context of a garden, it took on the particular meaning of getting all of those useless branches off of the vine, right? What we call in English pruning. But in this language, it's all the same word. It's all clean. You're, so when Jesus says in verse number two, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. We could almost say uh, he's, he is every branch he cleans that he that it might bear more fruit now jesus says you are clean right um verse three already you are clean does that sound familiar you have been here for a few weeks does it when jesus says you are clean does that sound like something you've heard recently Jesus said to the disciples, when Judas was still there, after he washed their feet, you remember this? Jesus washes their feet in 13, verses 10 to 11. Jesus said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. This is that same word being used in its normal context of like washing and being clean. So Jesus washes all his disciples and all his disciples are clean. They're not all clean until Judas leaves because Judas is not clean, right? Now, all the disciples, they're all together and now Jesus says, you are all clean. And so Jesus is now doing this play on words with this word clean, this word prune. Jesus is cleaning you. Jesus is pruning you. How are you clean? How are you pruned? Well, Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. God cleans you, God prunes you through the word of Jesus. Isn't that powerful? What power and authority God's word has in our lives. Verse number seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is how we abide. This is how we bear much fruit. The Word of Jesus abides in us. And as the Word of Jesus abides in us, God cleans us. God prunes us. You know the words. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. As you meditate on the Word of God, as you sing the Word of God, as you hear the Word of God preached, Your heart is pruned, your heart is clean from the natural inclinations towards wickedness and rebellion. The Holy Spirit takes His word, convicts your heart of your disobedience. The Holy Spirit shows you how to change your passions and your affections which are disordered so that you bear more fruit. And what happens as your heart changes? What happens as you produce that fruit of holiness? You learn to want the things that God wants. You learn to hate the things that God hates. And so you'll ask whatever you wish, and God will give it to you. Jesus already promised that back in chapter 14, verse number 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do to you, that the Father may be glorified by the Son. How can you do that? How can you ask whatever you wish? Because your wishes and your desires are being cleaned to be like God's. You're asking the things that he wants from you. The word of Jesus abiding in you is changing your will, changing your passions. So you desire what Jesus desires. When you ask for those things, God is pleased to give them to you. God's goal, God's desire for you as his child, as a branch growing on the vine of Jesus, is that you produce much fruit. You bear a lot of fruit by abiding in Jesus. You bear a lot of fruit through the pruning hand of God. And you bear a lot of fruit by receiving his word and abiding in Jesus' word. But bearing a lot of fruit is not a drag. It's not a hardship. It's not a cross to bear. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. God is working for your joy. Jesus is working for your joy. You will find real, lasting joy and contentment in your soul as you bear a lot of fruit for Jesus. In fact, Jesus is rejoicing that you are going to produce much fruit in him. And Jesus is passing his joy onto you as you abide in him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' command to abide in him is a joyful, a life-giving command. It is for your good. It is for your flourishing. It is for your fruit that you abide in him. God is producing a lot of fruit. God is producing a lot of fruit in your life for your joy and for his glory. He gives you his word for your joy. He prunes you for your joy. So let us not only abound in fruit, let us joyfully abound in fruit. For by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Father, we thank you for your word.